The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture is from Matthew 16, 13 through 17, and John 10, 24 and 25. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed, his, revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. My name is Lee Eric Fesco. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Stacy, for having me. I always love being uh, here at the Music Row campus. So once again, if, if I don't know you, I'd love to take some time afterwards to, to get to know you. Um, do you remember where you were on November the 7th, 2000? What happened on that night? I wonder how many remember what happened on the night of November 7, 2000. It was a date that uh, if you don't remember, if that doesn't spring to the front of your mind, let me remind you what it was. It was the night of a national election. The two primary candidates for president that evening were Governor George W. Bush and Senator Al Gore. In the year 2000, I was an adult and I'd already participated in other elections. It wasn't my first time casting a vote in a, in a national presidential election. By that point, I'd already cast a vote in the, in the 92 and 96 elections. So this wasn't my first, but it was no doubt uh, the most memorable. Why is that? As the returns came in, it became increasingly clear that the difference between winning and losing for one of the candidates came down to a razor's edge. Tim Russert, a longtime political analyst for NBC, was crunching the numbers right on live TV. And rather than using fancy graphics or the high-powered technology of the time, he used a small dry erase whiteboard. I don't know if you remember this. And he propped it right up on the desk and he pointed it right at the camera as the results continued to come in. And it was late in the evening. All the state projections had come in, save one. Tim Russert wrote on his whiteboard in clumsy capital letters, three times he wrote, Florida, Florida, Florida. The entire election came down to one state, one county. And once that tally was made known, we would be able to proclaim who the next leader of the free world would be. We wouldn't know for weeks who the victor would be as, as we performed counts and, and recounts and recounts again. And they, they closely examined ballots. And we all learned for the first time in our lives what a hanging chad was. Never heard of that term before, but now, now I know. It made such an impression on me because I couldn't get over the idea that despite the millions and millions of votes that were cast that day and, and prior to that, it was being decided by such a minuscule count. It all comes down to this, was the refrain. For one, it meant taking it up residence at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. And for the other, it meant they were going to have a lot of time on their hands. It all comes down to this. 
You might say we're faced with a similar proposition this week. If you've ever held a Bible in your hands and, 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 you, and you, hold, you hold that book and it contains thousands of pages of, of tightly configured text, in that book there's, there's history, there's narrative, there's poetry, there's, there's prophecy, there's letters. And if we remove one account, take away the resurrection, and what are we left with? Dear friends, why did you get out of bed this morning? Why did you get out of bed and, and put on your Sunday best, take a journey perhaps more than a few miles down the road, enter a building like this one, and participate in the, in the songs and the liturgy, and now, and now you're sitting here listening to me. What a peculiar ritual this is. Why do you do it? You do it because of the resurrection. It all comes down to this. It all comes down to the resurrection. Pastor and author Tim Keller once said, if Jesus rose from the dead, you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. The Apostle Paul once said something very similar in the 15th chapter in his first letter to the church at Corinth. He said, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people are most to be pitied. Why would he say something like that? Why is the matter of the resurrection so critical? What difference does it make either way? The passage of scripture that, that Aaron read for us a moment ago gives us a hint. Tell us, Jesus. Tell us plainly if you are the Christ. To be called the Christ, it might surprise you, might not surprise you to know that that is not Jesus's last name. The term Christ is a title. It comes from the Greek word Christos, which means anointed or chosen one. It's the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Messiah. So, so when these people are asking us, tell, tell us, tell us if you are the Christ, what they're asking him is, is tell us if you're the one who has been sent by God to be the king and the deliverer. When they asked him this, what was his response? The works that I do in my Father's name, the works that I do in God's name on behalf of God Almighty, the works that I do bear witness about me. He's saying the things that I do, the things that I teach, the things that I command you to do, the acts that I engage in validate who I am. They validate the fact that I am the Christ. This is, this is why the resurrection is so important. Because the resurrection validates everything Jesus said about himself. It validates the fact that he is the Christ. The anointed sent from God, it validates the fact that he's the one with God, that he is God incarnate. It's in the same discourse where he, pl where he plainly says in John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. What other religion makes such a claim? The resurrection validates the fact that Jesus is the creator. And if he's the creator, then he is sovereign over everything, including and especially death. Like Paul said, if, if everything Jesus said and did only serves to benefit us in this life only, we're wasting our time. 
You should get up from your seat right now and, and, and go do whatever you want, though I hope you'll hear me out. If the resurrection, it's, it's the resurrection that gives us meaning and gives us purpose in this life and what awaits us is a life incorruptible. It all hinges on the resurrection. It all comes down to this, the resurrection. When my sons were younger, they would ask me all kinds of questions. They're 14 and 16 now, and, and I've always tried to make a point of, of, uh, of, of stopping to answer their questions, even the hard ones. I never, I never try and, and put it off to later. I never try to go ask your mom that one. I never, I never try and do that. I always try and be in the moment, and if an opportunity presents itself for a difficult question that comes my way as a result of my children's inquisitive minds, I'm going to answer it. I want them to hear it from me. I try and be direct and honest with them and not, not, not put off answering it. As they get older, though, the line of questioning has changed a bit. They ask a question, I answer it, and now they'll often follow up with, how do you know? <laughs> how do I know? <laughs> I'm dad. I just, I just know. I know these things. Have I ever given you reason to doubt me? Have I ever misled you? Can't you just trust me when, they, when I give you the answer to these questions? The more I find myself saying, I just reply to that, I just know. <laughs> I just know. And I'll admit it's a tad circular, and we can be this way about the Bible too. How do we know the resurrection is real? Because the Bible tells us so. How do we know the Bible is trustworthy? Because the Bible tells us so. You see, the Bible is self-validating. You know, it is like tell, me telling my son, I, I just know, right? It just is. And no doubt about it, the, the Bible does provide its own credibility. But God in his mercy has also left us a trail to follow with our minds. You see, the Bible doesn't hinge upon the word of one individual like so many other religions of the world do. The Bible utilizes the testimony of numerous eyewitness accounts and testimonies. There's a common objection that states, don't you realize that the Bible wasn't put together until the late 300s? The late 4th century by a couple of church councils? How can we trust any text that was put together not until nearly the year 400? 400 years after the event took place that's in question. It's true that the scriptures weren't initially or officially canonized, until the late 300s. But what we mean by canonize is that the church, it's, it's not that they decided. It's not that the church decided what books would be in the New Testament, but the church officially acknowledged which writings already had authority in the church. As one scholar states, the church did not determine the canon, it recognized the canon. And what went into recognizing the canon? Each book that was included in the New Testament had to meet certain criteria. They had to be of apostolic origin, meaning each book had to, to, to have been written by an apostle or by an associate who preserved the apostle's teaching. And the book had to, be, had to have been written during the apostolic age, at the time when the apostles were still alive. So what this means is that those who wrote about the resurrection in our Bibles did so from a first century perspective. One of the more common objections to the validity of the resurrection is the insistence that the, the resurrection story is a legend that had grown over time. An element to the life of Jesus that was added and exaggerated a couple hundred years after his death. But what I'll point you to is a passage of scripture from Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church, chapter 15, verses 3 to 8, where he tells the church this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And then he goes on to say, that 
he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas. From a grammatical standpoint, in both the English and the Greek, the repeated use of the word that is unnecessary. But the reason for its inclusion, when Paul speaks of, of that which he also received, is because what Paul is citing here is a creed, a summary of what the earliest Christians believed and memorized. And since Paul's conversion was, was one to four years after the crucifixion, this creed in 1 Corinthians is likely one of the oldest parts of the New Testament, perhaps dating within one to three years of Jesus' death. It means that there were enough people there were enough people who believed that Jesus was resurrected and that there was a creed that was circulating, affirming it with just, within just a few years of his death. In other words, it can't be a legend. There were a substantial, substantial number of people that believed it to be true soon after the death of Christ. You, you can't call it a legend that grew over time. And while some of the more common objections of the, of the critics of the Bible cite uh, when asked for the resurrection, about the resurrection, they'll include things like, oh, well, Jesus didn't really die. He passed out and came to in the tomb. Or he actually had a twin. Or his enemies or his friends stole the body from the tomb. Or they went looking for him in the wrong tomb. These are the most, amongst the most common explanations for how to account for the, the historically chronicled fact that we don't have Jesus's body. And I can assure you, it's possible to shoot holes all through those theories, and many people have. In fact, I'd commend you to, to reading a book written by a member of, uh, of CPC. His name is Doug Powell, and he's written uh, one of the greatest apologetics resources of our time. It's a book called The Holman Quick Source Guide to Christian Apologetics. And, and he addresses each one of those theories uh, in his book on, on the section of uh, uh, apologetics. So for Doug Powell Apologetics. But what I want to uh, spend the rest of our time discussing is not an apologetic for why the common objections don't hold water. Rather, I want to focus on the people. I want to focus on the people, the behavior and testimony of the people who bear witness through their words and their actions that the resurrection is a reality. And it's a reality that demands from us a response. I'm going to start with the apostles themselves, the apostles, the twelve. There are four people in our immediate family. Uh, my wife, two, two, two teenage boys, and myself. And we're a family that enjoys watching movies from time to time. And, and we got a nice little setup in the room above the garage. And quite frankly, uh, we all enjoy our time up there more than we would if we were going to the movie theater itself. Okay? It's cheaper. It's more comfortable. And did I mention it's cheaper? Much cheaper. Okay? So while we enjoy watching a good movie, deciding on what movie we're going to watch is sometimes quite painful. I remember the days when my wife and I, we got married and, and we wanted to go watch a movie. We'd, we would go to the Blockbuster video. Remember those? And you'd walk up and down the aisle and look for the movie that, number one, looked interesting, but number two was in stock. It had to be in stock. Nowadays, being in stock isn't an issue. It's on demand. Everything, everything, it's just in the ether. We can pull it out from the sky. And, and making matters worse, there are an infinite number of choices. So sometimes scrolling through an infinite number of choices and finding something that we all agree upon takes as long as watching the movie itself. And getting four people to agree on something is borderline miraculous. 
And even beyond agreeing upon the movie, just getting four people to agree on a movie that, that, we, that we all feel strongly about, it's just not possible. It just doesn't happen, right? We have, we have one woman against three boys. Sometimes preferences are different from that perspective. We have two teenagers and two adults who are, who are pretty cool for their age, I might add. But, but sometimes preferences are different from that standpoint, too. It's hard to all get us agree on something. At the point of the crucifixion, what we have in the apostles is essentially universal agreement. They're all afraid. They're all afraid. Judas, we know what happened to him, but the rest, the Gospels tell us when Jesus was arrested, the disciples deserted him. Peter, perhaps the most outspoken member of the group, denied Jesus three times on the night of his arrest. On the Sunday after his crucifixion, Mary returned from the tomb only to discover the other disciples hiding and weeping in fear. All in agreement. They must have felt strongly about what they were all in agreement about. Things hadn't gone as they'd imagined. Though Jesus did speak of his death and his resurrection, they didn't get it. They certainly didn't anticipate it. And certainly not just three days later. So what happened? What changed? How do you convince 11 people to go from hiding out like scared children to 50 days later, boldly proclaiming something? The same thing. I'm a child of the 80s and I spent most of my teen years in the city of Atlanta. And, and so what that means is I, drew, I grew up drinking Coca-Cola. A lot of it. I drank so much of it that in my adult years, it was a hard habit to break. As I got older, I went from, from Coke to Diet Coke. And I said, no, you shouldn't be drinking Diet Coke. That's the hard thing. I went from Diet Coke to now carbonated water. You know, we're all drinking the, the, this carbonated water now, right? Can't kick the carbonation. The sugar was hard enough. Sparkling water. You know, everyone's drinking this now. It's carbonated with a slight amount of flavor to go with it. And by slight, I mean, I mean slight. It was passed through a room with a bowl of fruit in it. <laughs> That's how slight. Well, this last Christmas, I, I got an appliance of sorts that allows me to make my own carbonated beverages. And uh, I can add as much or as little flavoring as I want. Sometimes it's a shot of lime, sometimes a little bit of pomegranate, sometimes a little bit of both. And let me tell you something. Once I got this thing, I would not shut up about it at the office. I kept on talking about it and talking about it. Like, you got to get one of these things. They're, they're fantastic. If you'd like to hear more about it, I'd be happy to tell you about it after the service. <laughs> They are fantastic. Again, I, if you feel strongly about something, no one has to twist your arm to talk about it, right? You can't help yourself but talk about the things you feel strongly about. The disciples, 11 of them, went from terrified to not shutting up about something. What was it that caused such a dramatic shift? What if you witnessed something so unbelievable, so unexpected, so hopeful and joyous and victorious and miraculous? I dare say you too wouldn't be able to shut your mouth about it either. And do those apostles feel strongly about it? Oh, yes, they did. They all, all 11 of them, not only agreed upon something, but they felt so strongly about something, there was literally nothing on earth that you could get them to shut their mouth over it and stop talking about it. Literally nothing. They were told, if you keep talking about this, it's going to cost you your life. And did that stop them? James, brother of John, he was beheaded. James, son of Alphaeus, stoned and clubbed to death. Philip, scourged and crucified. Andrew, crucified on an X-shaped cross. Matthew, pinned to the ground and beheaded. Peter, crucified upside down. Thomas, executed with spears. Bartholomew, it's pretty horrifying. We'll just say he, he got executed too. 
Thaddeus crucified, Simon the Zealot, executed in Persia when he refused to bow to a sun god. John was exiled to an island and there he died. Matthias, who replaced Judas, stoned and beheaded. That's how strongly they felt about this. There's some critical uh, disagreement about the manner in which some of these disciples died, but it's all universally agreed they all died a martyr's death, save John. That's how strongly they felt about the resurrection. To go from hiding out to being willing to die horrific deaths. For what? They wouldn't betray what they knew to be true. Again, how many people can agree on anything? When do you find 12 people that can agree upon something to the point they're willing to die for it? 12 people. 12 pe maybe, maybe there's one willing to die for something not true. Two, perhaps three. I, I just won't believe it. 12. 12. 12 people willing to die. And it quickly became more than 12. There's a long list of martyrs that came after them that were willing to die for something that was true. And you see, that alone takes out most of the theories about how people might explain the resurrection. A stolen body, that's a lie. A body double, that's a lie. Wrong tomb, someone would have made that correction within moments. So to carry on the idea despite knowing the truth, that's a lie. Twelve people willing to die, and the way they died, for a lie? I can't imagine it. I can't fathom it. And of course, there's Paul. Paul went from chief persecutor to chief apostle. He's responsible for more than half the New Testament. How does that happen without the influence of something? Nothing less than miraculous. Yes, Paul was martyred too. People don't do that. What are you willing to die for? I'll tell you something. There's not a lot I'd be willing to die for. And I don't think I'm alone in that sentiment. I dare say that's true for all of us. And, and to know that the followers of Christ were willing to die for what they knew to be true is telling. And maybe that feels a little removed to you, which is why I'll tell you this. Perhaps even beyond that, perhaps the most compelling evidence that there is for the resurrection is not the impact that it had on the contemporaries of Jesus, but the impact that it has on people today still. In the Bible, there has been this persistent theme of resurrection from the opening pages to its end. And you have to, you can't miss it. You have to see it from the very beginning of the Bible. It's been telling and whispering us all along, resurrection, resurrection. It's about the resurrection. Look to the resurrection. In the Old Testament, in Ezekiel 37, we read about Israel, whom the, whom the Lord refers to as his firstborn son. He shows the prophet a valley of dry bones. Perhaps you remember this account. And he's showing him this is a picture of death. And he tells him, prophesy over these bones. And the Lord said, behold, I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live. It's resurrection. Verse 12, he says, therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from the dead. Oh, oh, my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise, your, raise you from your graves. Oh, my people, I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land, and you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. You see, this isn't just a passage that, that's, that's telling us about bringing people back to their, their land. 
This is a passage that the scripture whispers to us the resurrection. You see, Paul referred to Jesus also in 1 Corinthians 15 as the first fruits. The first of many to come, the resurrection that precedes yours and mine. Resurrection is taking place in the hearts of all believers and he has put his spirit within you. And you experience, you experience a resurrection. He places in you Ezekiel 36, 26, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. A resurrection of the heart that precedes the eventual resurrection of your body. This, this is the greatest evidence I know of the resurrection is that to this day, he changes hearts. He creates a new person. A new spirit is put within his people. How is it that something that happened 2,000 years ago still profoundly impacts and affects people so much? Look, you're still here. Why do you uphold something that took place more than 2,000 years ago? Why do you do it? Because of the resurrection. Because it's real. He breathes new life into old. Listen to what Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians from the first chapter, starting in verse 18. He's giving thanks to, to God for the church and, and he's speaking a prayer over them. And his prayer for them is to understand this. He wants them to understand this. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what it is to hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. He's saying that by the same power that God used to raise his son from the dead, may that power be the power that awakens your heart to the strong to that what awaits you. The riches of his glorious inheritance and with your heart drawn to that, with your heart transformed by the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, you are changed. You are a new creation. You've heard it said before that you can't teach an old dog new tricks, or maybe you've heard it said people don't change. We're all set in our ways. Yes, that's true. That's true. There's no motivation for any of us to change. Read the book of Ecclesiastes. This goes on and on about that. Yet I, I bet there are more than a few of us have witnessed someone change, either radically in an instant over the course of a lifetime. How does that happen? How do people change? There's no motivation for any of us to live any other life than a selfish one, grabbing as much as we can along the way, unless, unless the resurrection is real. Unless there's a power out there that can undo the power of death and make it impotent. And if that same power can exercise its authority in stubborn hearts like yours and mine, then and only then can people change. That's the only way. I want you to remember this. I want you to marinate on that thought as, as we come to this table. This table reminds us of the sacrifice of Christ, that he gave everything, his body and his blood, to reconcile you before the Father, to cancel your sin and give you resurrection. A new heart, a new, a new heart of flesh, a heart that was dead and raised to life. The power that raised Christ from the dead is the power that resides in you right now, right now. Praise be to Christ. Let's pray with me. 
Dear Father, we thank you for the resurrection. We thank you that you didn't leave us groping in the darkness. We thank you for the voices that have gone before us and testified and gave their life for the reality of the resurrection. But more than that, Father, we thank you that we can bear witness to the power of the resurrection right before our very eyes in the hearts of all believers. Help us to long to see more of it. Help us to to bring out the power of the resurrection in one another. Help us to share the power of the resurrection with everyone we meet so that we can watch and see the faint picture today of what we will fully know as we realize the inheritance you've set aside for us. Help us to long for that day. But in the meantime, let that joyful anticipation be reflected in everything we do and say and touch. Thank you for your son who did this for us. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.